0: You are listening to the First Baptist Church Martin Podcast. For more information on our church, visit fbcmartin.org. As Brother Mike said, if you got your Bible or your copy of God's Word, go ahead and be opening to uh, Psalm 63, if you have not, um, it's hard to believe the summer's almost over. Um, we've been through Vacation Bible School, we've been through Youth Camp, Camp 1031, and now we have a team in D.C., as Brother Mike just said. And um, It's been a great summer, but I cannot believe that it's flown by. I don't know if y'all feel that way, but um, it always feels that way for me at the end of the summer. But Psalm 63, I know y'all have kind of gotten comfortable, but I'm going to go ahead and ask y'all to stand as we honor God uh, with the reading of His Word So will you follow along and read with me Psalm 63? O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. And they shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, in the Psalm, the context is the same as the Psalm that Brother Mike preached last month. That was Psalm 61. Uh, David is on the run for his life, uh, David has found himself in a hairy situation because of David's sin with Bathsheba calamity has come upon David's family 2nd Samuel chapter 12 verse 10 says now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife this verse in 2nd Samuel chapter 12 would prove to be painfully accurate for David if you read the following chapters after 2 Samuel chapter 12, what you will see is unspeakable things taking place between David's children. And it all comes to a head when one of David's sons, Absalom, raises up his own group of people to overthrow his father as king. As Absalom raises up this group of people, David begins to run. He begins to flee from Jerusalem. And he's running for his life. And he finds himself and what this psalm calls the wilderness. Psalm 63 is just one of the psalms that is recorded during this difficult time of David's life, but it's in this psalm that David writes things that do not quite seem to fit his circumstances. This psalm does not read like someone who's facing what I just described, someone who's on the run, someone who's fearing for his life, someone who is wanted for dead. And I'll remind us, throughout our time together this morning, of what David was going through as he wrote this psalm full of joy in the Lord. It reminds me of when Paul wrote the book of Philippians in the New Testament. Most people, if you ask them if they've studied the book of Philippians, the theme of that book would be joy. But Paul was in a situation much like David. Paul wrote that book from a prison cell. So how can it be that a man in the wilderness and a man in a prison cell can Write about the joy of the Lord and what they find in him. There's three things that David did during this psalm that helped him be in the place, he was at this, at the place he was at with the Lord. And so the first thing David did was seek God's presence. If you look at verses 1 through 5, I'm not going to reread all these right now, but David opens up this psalm by saying, "O oh God, you are my God. Right away we get this picture that David has a personal and intimate relationship with the Lord. This psalm reads uh, like someone who is truly following the Lord in a personal and intimate way. So as we go through this psalm this morning, as we walk through what David is saying, what I want you to ask yourself is this. Is the way David describes his relationship with the Lord the way that you would describe your relationship with the Lord? David goes on to say a lot more in verse 1. The next thing he says is, Earnestly I seek you. Now the word he uses uh, for seek there is the word we get for dawn, which means that for David, David began his seeking God early in the morning. Now what I want to tell you this morning is that as we seek God, this process is a wholehearted searching and a strong desire to grow closer to God. And I want to be careful here as we talk about how David did this early in the morning. What I'm not suggesting to you is that all of your time with God has to be spent in the morning. Before you do anything, you have to spend all of your time with the day with God. Now, it's a great idea to start your day that way. In fact, I would tell you, if you're not spending the majority of your time in God's Word, I would say that you need to start uh, the day with a personal and intimate moment with God. Perhaps that's through prayer. Perhaps that's through meditating on some things God's done for you recently. And maybe it is a large amount of time in God's Word. No matter what that looks like for you, our lives should look like this. We should be with the Lord in the morning, we should be with Him at night, and we should be with Him all of the times in between. David says, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, thirst is just simply the feeling and wanting of needing something to drink. Has anybody ever uh, taken a drink which you thought might be a quick drink and you realize just how thirsty you really are? Which you thought was going to be a quick gulp or a quick drink and before you know it, you drink almost all, if not all, of your drink? David's not talking about a physical thirst. He's talking about a spiritual thirst. David knew something that we would all do well to know. David knew that he must maintain a close walk with God because it was the only way he could be strengthened, sustained, and satisfied. David's soul could go no more without God than his body could live without water. I want to read a few verses for you that illustrate this idea of God being where our satisfaction is. As a deer pants for flowing streams, this is Psalm 42, so... My soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before Him? Psalm 143, verse 6. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, you may be familiar with this one. Blessed is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. David understood that God was the only source of replenishment for his soul. In fact, the picture he uses here is this, a dry and weary land where there is no water. When we seek and thirst for things above God, our soul becomes nothing more than a weary land, a desert, if you will. And here's the problem. Many of us don't realize that our soul's in that condition. Warning signs and signals are firing off, and we don't even realize that there's a problem. Let me ask you a few questions. Have you ever gotten really angry and said something, and you thought to yourself, man, where did that come from? Maybe I'm not describing you. Maybe I'm describing somebody you know. But have you ever been in a situation where things aren't going exactly the way that you want? And maybe things aren't going as fast as you want. And you start to act a little irrational. Maybe you're having thoughts that you don't normally have. What is going on when those things happen? That is nothing more than the check engine light of our soul coming on. And the only way to fix it is to spend some personal time with God. David goes on to say in verse 2, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. David's passionate longing for God is intensified here in the wilderness because of a past encounter with God that he had in the sanctuary, or better put perhaps, the tabernacle. I don't know about you, but i read verse 1, and I feel conviction, because this isn't how I always feel. I'm not always earnestly seeking God and thirsting for Him. And I, and I read that, and I wonder, how did David get to that place? Where does his spiritual appetite come from? And it's clear in verse 2 that David's worship of God was what the, was what the key was. He was in the tabernacle, and that's where he worshipped the Lord. Now, I want to be clear about something this morning. David wasn't just strengthened at the tabernacle. David was strengthened at the tabernacle because that's where the presence of God was. David was on the run in the wilderness and he's being strengthened by going back to a moment where he was in the presence of God. And so here's my question for us this morning. How much time are we spending in the presence of God? Truly. How much are you spending time with God? And how is it changing you and making you more like Christ? One commentator said this, it is our regular worship in the presence of God that prepares us for the crisis experiences of life. Our time with God, or the lack of, is what will prepare us as we face difficult and challenging days. David would go on to say in verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. How could David say that God's love was better than life? Just think about the magnitude of that saying. That's something cool to put on a shirt or to put on some wall decor at the at the house. But for David this was true. David knew that God was not only with him, but for him, through thick and thin, good times, bad times, in the royal palace as the king on the throne, or in the rugged wilderness on the run. Don't forget where David's at as he writes these words. He was on the run. And what David shows us is that even in pain and affliction and difficult days, praising God can still take place. To David, God's love was better than life. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that God's love is better than life? When we praise God, are we truly praising Him for who He is and what He's done, or are we just going through the motions? See, this was not just something David said. This love compelled David into action. Verse 4 and 5 say, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David's only response was to praise God and to seek Him for satisfaction. And if we're truly seeking and pursuing God ourselves, our only response is to bless God with our lives and to live for Him and to worship Him and to praise Him. And when David talks about being satisfied with food in verse 5, he's not just talking about any food. David, as a king, would have been well acquainted with royal banquets where they had quite a spread of food. And I'm not just talking about food, just to throw some food out there. I'm not talking about food that was just nourishing and good for you. This was some good food. David knew what it meant to eat good. So they had some great food. And so I li- thinking about food, like, has anybody ever been satisfied by a good meal? Like, yeah, you've been satisfied by a good meal. What do you do? Depending on what generation you're in, uh, maybe you'll go and you'll tell a lot of people, man, I had a good meal. Somebody cooked this up, and you've got to try this now. You've got to go to this restaurant. Or if you're from another generation, you just take a picture of it and post it on social media. <laughs> Some of us have just pictures of food in our phone, and we've never really done anything with them, but decide to just take a picture. But the point I want to tell you this morning is this. When we are satisfied, we offer our praise. When we are content with something, when we are satisfied with something, we will offer our praise. And I will tell you, the same should be true of God. Yet how often are we quick to forget the very one who satisfies us? These first few verses talk a lot about thirst and hunger and food. And I couldn't help but think about this. as Just as we have physical senses that God's creation satisfies, we have spiritual senses that only Christ can satisfy if we were as attentive to the warning signs of our phys- or if we were as attentive to the warning signs of our soul as we were to our physical bodies, we all would be living for Christ a whole lot more. So, how do we do this? How do we truly seek God and His presence? A couple questions and a couple thoughts. First question is this: Is God really your God? David starts this psalm out by saying, Oh God, you are my God. Some of you may be in here thinking, I need to grow closer to Him. You may hear words uh, in a Bible study. You may hear the Word of God being talked about and you think, I need to grow closer to Him. And I'm just going to tell you, you can't grow closer to someone you've never given your life to. Is He really your God? Here's another question. What are you seeking and where do you find Satisfaction. I'm convinced that if we were to all be really honest with ourselves, we oftentimes make mistake truly seeking Jesus with just being busy with churchy and spiritual things. Being present in good and godly situations doesn't automatically mean that you're seeking God. And don't get me wrong. Being in those places is great and it's absolutely necessary. But here's what we need to know. A few things that we can do to seek God. first thing we can do uh, to seek God is to be in His Word. Now, I know this is going to surprise many of you to hear from somebody preaching on God's Word this morning that you need to be in God's Word, but that's how you can seek Him. We don't just say this just because it's a nice thing to say. Seek God by getting in His Word and reading His Word. How many pastors, how many uh, people have told you you need to be in the Word? We say that because it's the most important way that you can seek Him. And I will tell you this morning that it's not just enough to read it. If you're truly seeking the Lord, it revolves around you doing what the Word says. It's not just enough that you would read it and know what it says. Seeking God isn't just knowing the right thing to do. Seeking God is doing the right thing from God's Word. So seeking God looks a lot like being in His Word. Another thing we can do is be in prayer. If I were to ask you this morning, how many of you would raise your hand if you would say, sometimes I don't know what it looks like to seek the Lord. But being honest, a lot of hands would go up. Many days, my hand would go up. What does it look like for me to seek the Lord day by day? And I would tell you that there's countless scriptures in the New Testament where Jesus says, if you will ask of something from me, I will give it to you. If you want to know what it looks like for you to seek the Lord, ask God, God, give me wisdom. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to seek you. God, give me wisdom. Give me direction. Give me insight. I don't know what I need, but God, I know that you're going to provide. Seeking God looks a lot like being in prayer. Another thing we can do is uh, seek God by being in fellowship with others. It looks like being in small groups. It looks like being around people who are helping you walk for the Lord. You've been around First Baptist for the last several months. You're hearing us say a lot of things about uh, helping every generation Believe, connect, grow, and go. And one of those things is connect. We don't just say that because it sounds good. We really believe at First Baptist that one of the ways that you can grow, one of the ways that you can seek the Lord is by connecting with other people. Having people come alongside you and help you see things that you're not seeing. Help you to push you in a way that maybe you don't know how to be pushed. We need to surround ourselves with people who are pushing us to obey the Lord. And lastly, seeking the Lord looks a lot like being in church. Now, I said it just a second ago, coming to church in and of itself does not mean that you're seeking the Lord. So here's some ways you can seek God at church. Before you came this morning, before you come to this place each week, do you pray at home? Do you pray on the way over here? God, I want you to show me something I need to hear today. I need a word from you. I need to be encouraged. I need to be strengthened. God, give me a word. As you're listening in small groups, as you're listening in corporate worship, are you actively listening and looking for ways to serve Him? If you're here physically but absent mentally and spiritually, perhaps that's a sign that you aren't truly seeking God. If we're being honest, it's not hard to answer the question, are we seeking Him? We know the answer. The question for us this morning is if we aren't seeking Him or seeking Him like we should, what are we going to do? How are we going to change that? David was seeking God. That's abundantly clear here in Psalm 63. Verses 1-5, through read like a man who was truly described as a man after God's own heart. David seeking God led him to do the second thing we're going to look at this morning, which is remember God's power. Verses 6-8 through eight talks a lot about how David remembered God. And David says in verse 6, When I remember, the word remember is such an interesting word in the Bible. In the Old Testament alone, it's used 180 times. And I want to give you just a few examples of how this word is used in the Old Testament. The people of God had experienced good times in Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis. They had experienced good times under the leadership of Joseph. But as the book of Genesis ends and the book of Exodus begins, Joseph is no longer alive and the people of God became slaves in Egypt. And in the opening chapters of Exodus, if you read those chapters, you will see that the people of God are experiencing difficult times. So difficult, in fact, that they're wondering, is God even here? Does God even know what I'm going through? One of the last verses in Exodus chapter 2, Exodus chapter 2, verse 24 says this, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Does it comfort you this morning to know that God remembers you? That God remembers his people? Just a few chapters later in Exodus chapter 13, the Israelites under the guide of Moses were on the cusp of leaving Egypt as slaves. After hundreds of years of being slaves in Egypt, They're getting ready to leave, and they're about to cross the Red Sea. And Moses tells them in Exodus chapter 13, verse 3, Remember this day which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, God doesn't just remember us. We are to remember Him. And then one more verse. I could have picked a lot of verses from the book of Judges. Because all throughout the book of Judges, the people of God have decided... They're going to take matters into their own hands. They think they know better than God, so they're going to live how they want to live. And a lot of verses in the book of Judges reads like this. Judges chapter 8, verse 34. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all of their enemies on every side. It's a tragic thing when God's people do not remember all the good and great things He has done for them. And when the word remember is used in the Bible carries with it a great sense of responsibility. If you have friends of any duration and y'all get together and you're thinking about days of the past, it's inevitable. You're talking, you're hanging out, having a good time. Inevitably, inevitably someone will say, hey, do you remember when? And from there, you just have some, some good old stories. You can talk about a lot of things from, from days of the past. And when we remember things, it invokes in us a strong sense of what it's like to remember the past. When David talks about remembering, he says this, he says he remembers God upon his bed. And let me ask you a couple of questions. Why did David say that? When you lay down at night, where does your mind go? You've gotten through the day, you finally have made it to bed, and I don't know about you, I can't just go right to sleep. I don't have that spiritual gift. But you lay down and your mind just starts to race. And maybe if you are one of those people who have the spiritual gift of going to sleep really fast, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's like when you're getting ready for bed. You're getting ready to go to bed and you sit down and you finally got a moment for the first time just to yourself. Maybe you've got young kids and they've been going all kinds of crazy or you've had a lot of things going on that day and you finally just have a moment to sit down. Where does your mind go? If we're not careful, it's really easy for our minds to go to yesterday's problem. It's really easy for our minds to go to all the things that didn't go right today and to go to the things that we're worried about for tomorrow and to this problem and that problem. And and David says we need to remember not any of that. We need to remember God. This is where our minds should go. Now I mentioned this earlier, but you combine this verse with the first verse here in Psalm 63 and we get a clear picture that David not only starts his day with God and he ends his day with God. And while it doesn't say it explicitly here in Psalm 63, I think it's safe for us to assume that David probably gave a lot of other thoughts to God all throughout the day. At this point in his life, David was a man with a mind that sought the Lord. It's no wonder he's earnestly seeking Him and thirsting for Him. It's because his mind was filled with the things of God. Now remember, where was he at? He was in the wilderness in a weary and dry land on the run. There was plenty of things that could have caused David to worry. Plenty of things that David could have been anxious about. One commentator put it this way, David was in continual peril for his life, so that we may suppose care and fear many a times held his eyes waking and gave him wearisome nights. But then he entertained and comforted himself with the thoughts of God. Sometimes we find David in tears upon his bed, Psalm 6, 6, It says, every night I I flood my bed with tears, but David would wipe away those tears. And when sleep departs from our eyes, our souls, by remembering God, may be put to ease and rest. Perhaps an hour's worth of pious meditation will do us more good than an hour's sleep. I'll tell you, church, our thoughts got to be fixed on God and remembering the good things He's done for us. It's not just enough to have fleeting thoughts about God. You wake up, oh yeah, God's good, and then you go on about your day. We we live in a world that's constantly pulling for our attention all the time. We have phones, we have all kinds of other devices that are vying for our attention. So it's not enough just to have these random thoughts about God. We must have abiding thoughts in God. And what I mean by that is we must have thoughts that when we get done thinking about them, they drive us to a stronger obedience with Him. When we get done thinking about the Lord, it's not just afterthought, one ear out the other. We're actually going to go and we're going to do something about this. We're going to live differently. Verse 7, we see why David is so driven to remember God. It's because God has been his help. Did you know this morning that God is your first line of help and defense? He's not your plan B. He's not your emergency plan. He's not a last resort. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, uh, the writer says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is where help comes from. And then David uses the phrase, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. This kind of reads like a mama bird protecting and providing shelter to its young baby bird underneath her wings. Why do mama birds do that? Because that baby bird is helpless. And can I tell you this morning, church, that you and I are helpless. And our only hope is God. Some of our biggest failures have come when we stand in our strength and do things on our own because we've gotten away from the shadow of the wings that God has graciously given us. And if you catch the end of that phrase, it says, I will sing for joy. So not only is David remembering God throughout his journey in the wilderness, he is joyfully singing. Because God has been his help, David is overjoyed. Which leads me to the question, how often do you acknowledge and thank him for the help he's given us? How many times in your life has God been good to you and answered you in your distress, only for you to not give him another thought? God's help should cause us to find joy in him. David says, I will remember you because you have been my help. The last thing here is we talk about how David remembers God's power, we see yet another powerful statement in verse 8. He says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now cling is such an interesting word to me. This isn't a word used to describe holding on to something casually or loosely. The idea here is that you're holding on for dear life or you're holding on with all your strength. And when I hear that word, I can't help but think of my daughter Emerson. Emerson has no fear. Well, almost no fear. She fears two things. She fears dogs, and she fears anyone who looks like Santa. And when she gets around those two things, man, you better watch out because she is full of fear. And when I hear this word cling, I think of her because when she gets around those things, whether it's me or Aaron that she's around, you ever seen someone like hug a tree and like just hold on to the tree? That's what she does to us. She will climb up us like we're a tree and just hold on for dear life. We don't even got to be holding on. She could just be holding on to us easy without us holding her on to her. That's the idea that I, think, that I think about when I think of how we're to cling to God. We're to hold on to him with all of our strength. But the good news for us this morning is that God is not passive in our clinging to him. The rest of the verse says he is holding us up. He's active in holding us up. And it's important to note that his holding us up is absolutely critical. Here's a quote that I came across i want to share with you that I found this week. It says, Those that follow hard after God would soon fail and faint if God's right hand did not uphold them. It is he that strengthens us in the pursuit of him, and it is the power of God that is his right hand that we are kept from falling. Hear me this morning, church. The Christian faith is not about you trying harder. It's not about you pulling up your bootstraps and being tough. It's about drawing near to Christ, knowing that you cannot and will not ever do a single thing without Him. We've got to get away from this idea that we can achieve anything apart from God. We've got to cling to Him. And if you need a reason why to cling to God, here's why. If you fail to cling to God, you will inevitably cling to something else. And it will be something of this world. Several years ago, Richard Ross came to our church. Richard Ross is someone who has spoken to a lot of uh, young people, ministries, uh, family ministries. And uh, several years ago, he came here and he preached and he spent some time uh, with our parents. And he said something, he did an illustration that has stayed with me ever since. And if you were here, you might remember this. But he was talking about the influence a parent has on their kids' heart and soul. And he talked about every kid growing up has like this metaphorical PVC pipe attached to their chest. And how they go around looking for someone else's pipe to connect with to fill their heart and to fill their soul. And the point he was making that morning was this. As parents, if you've got kids, your job is to pour all the good things of God into their heart and to their soul. And if they don't, what's going to happen? Well, inevitably, they will connect to something else. And that will shape their heart. And that will shape their soul. And that's how they will be influenced. And I would say this morning that the same is true for anyone of any age. If we're not letting our heart and our soul be influenced and shaped by God, hear me, it will be shaped and influenced by the things of this world. And if you don't believe that, just look around. We live in a day and time where we look around as the church and we think, golly, how are they believing in that? How are people falling into those traps? How are people having that mindset and that attitude towards the things that we know shouldn't be going on? It's because their hearts have clinged to the things of this world. And I would tell you this morning if you do not cling to God, it will not be good for you. How can we cling to Him? How can we remember? god's help one of my favorite verses is philippians chapter 4 verse 8 the apostle paul says finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there is any excellence if there is anything worthy of praise think about such things tell this to our students all the time what we fill our minds and our thoughts with will inevitably come out in how we talk and how we live and ultimately how we live for him. David seeking God led him to remember all the good things God had done for him. And in the midst of this incredibly difficult time in his life, his seeking and remembering, led him to do the last thing we look at this morning in the psalm, which is anticipate God's judgment. These last three verses, David anticipates the judgment of God for his enemies. It's easy to forget sometimes, but David had enemies. And not just any enemies. David had enemies that wanted to kill him. David's no more than on the scene in First Samuel, but for just a couple of chapters. Um, as, a, as a young shepherd boy, when we find out that Saul wants him dead, because Saul is jealous for the throne. And several chapters in First Samuel are devoted to Saul seeking the destruction of David. And even after David becomes king and Saul's no longer in the picture, we have several ideas and pictures in Second Samuel of the same kind of enemy seeking David to destroy him and his life. It wasn't just enough that he had enemies, he had enemies who decided they wanted him dead. And it's in these moments of dealing with those enemies, and it's in these moments of going through difficulties that you sit and watch enemies seemingly get away with the evil they're doing. And when we see that and we think that, it's important for us to remember the big picture. This is why David sought God early in the morning, thought about Him at night, because if he didn't, he would have been tempted just to throw a big old pity party in the wilderness. Anybody thrown a big old pity party before? Never ever done you any good? No. It's so easy for us to look around and see evil things happening and to come to some sort of conclusion in the middle of whatever struggle or whatever circumstance we find ourselves in and, and think, you know what? Evil's happening today. It's winning. Our enemies are triumphing. It's Christ's followers, we know that's not true. We know in Revelation how this all ends. It ends with Christ coming back and judging the entire earth. And so knowing all this, why is it so hard for us to keep the big picture in mind? Because we can't see everything that's ahead of us. You want to know why you worry about this situation and that situation and this problem and that problem? Because you don't know what's going to happen in that. Anne and I had a group of students over to our house recently, and a comment was made by one of the students who has worked with our kids this summer in various children's ministry activities. And the question they asked went something like this. Why are kids so trusting? I'm just going to tell you, when you get around someone who's preparing a sermon, we're looking for illustrations everywhere we can find them. So I went into preacher illustration mode. And thinking about this part in Psalm 63, I started to respond to the question of why are kids so trusting by talking about how often Jesus said we're to have a childlike faith. Children don't trust because they have all the facts and information. Children trust because they have been taken care of before, so they just assume they will be taken care of again. And then my mind immediately went to my own kids as I thought about these verses and keeping the big picture in mind when you cannot see everything ahead of you. Back in June, we went to uh, St. Louis for a family vacation. And on the way back, we were coming home, we're driving on the interstate, and it came a torrential downpour. I mean, it was raining. I know parts of Tennessee hadn't seen rain all June, but in Missouri, it was raining crazy. And so I'm driving, and I don't know if you've ever driven in that type of rain, but I couldn't see more than 20 feet in front of me. And I became overwhelmed. I became terrified. I was nervous. I was anxious. My wife and my three children were in their car, and all I was thinking about was, man, what am I going to do? I slow down. I turn my hazard lights on, and I'm just doing everything I can to see as much as I can in front of me. And I get this thought, just just look in the rearview mirror. See what your kids are doing. Because in my mind, like they got to be near tears. they got to be about losing their minds and just at their wit's end. And I look back in the rearview mirror and I see my oldest son, Gray, coloring. I see my daughter, Emmy, just playing with her babies and singing to them. And I see my youngest, Miles, all but dancing in his car seat to the music that I had completely blocked out. And I thought to myself, how are they not losing their minds? And then it hit me. They're not losing their minds because they've never had a reason not to trust their dad behind the wheel of a car. And I began to think of that moment when I was thinking about keeping the big picture in mind with the evil going on around the world. And here's what I came to. Listen to me. We have no reason not to trust God. We have no reason not to trust God. Just as my kids didn't lose their minds because their dad was at the wheel, we shouldn't, we shouldn't lose ours because, hear me, God is on the throne and he's in complete control. That's easier said than done, but it's why David had to constantly seek the Lord, remember him and cling to him, and the same should be true for us. It's hard for me not to read Psalm 63 without thinking of the references of Jesus, that Jesus made in the the New Testament about thirsting for God and being satisfied with God. And I think about what Jesus called himself in the New Testament when he called himself the bread of life and living water. John chapter 6 starts out with a miracle of how Jesus fed the 5,000. Do you imagine that? Like Jesus took what should have fed just a couple of people and fed thousands. And it was so miraculous, it was so incredible that as Jesus walked away from performing that miracle that people just followed him. They're like, hey, we want to see some more of this, man." And Jesus like, no, no, you're not seeking me for the right reasons. And then we get in John chapter 6, verse 35, one of the I am statements that Jesus makes. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. There's a similar story in John chapter 4. Jesus has a divine appointment with a woman at the well. Now this woman at the well was an outcast in society because of some decisions that she had made in her life. And because of those decisions, she found herself going to the well at midday by herself. And it's there where she meets Jesus who would change everything. This was a woman who had been trying pretty heavily to let the things in the world fulfill her and bring her satisfaction. And Jesus said something to her that would change her life forever. Forever. John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, if anyone drinks of this water, or everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And after Jesus said that, a lengthy conversation took place between Jesus and this woman. And Jesus shows this woman that he really is the Son of God. And she goes from trying to find satisfaction in the things of this world to being truly satisfied by God alone. And here's how her story ends in the Bible. John chapter 4, verse 28, 29 says, The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Here you've got a woman who was avoiding anybody and everybody she could. And so she comes to the well at the hottest part of the day to fill her water jar." And she meets Jesus and she realizes this is like unlike anything I've ever seen. And the Bible says that she left her water jar there and went to tell the very people that she was avoiding to begin with all about God. This is what it looks like to have a life that's changed by God and to be trusting in Him to be satisfied. Jesus says to us this morning, if you want to be truly satisfied, it's in me. It comes only through me. Listen, you can drink something to parch your thirst, but you'll get thirsty again. You can eat bread. Even bread that was miraculously provided. But you're going to get hungry again. There may be some people here this morning and you're looking in all the wrong places for meaning and satisfaction. You're looking into the things of this world for your purpose. You're looking into the things of this world to be satisfied and you're filling your life with all the wrong things. It reminds me of what Jeremiah said in the book of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where he said, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and dug out cisterns. It's like a jar. They've dug out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. When you're putting your hope, your satisfaction, your purpose, your meaning into something other than God, it's as if you're putting it into a broken jar. Could you imagine this morning holding up a broken jar and pouring something into it thinking it's going to hold? It would be foolish to do that. Yet how often do we try to fill our lives and give our lives meaning with the things of this world? Jesus says to you, I have something better. What Jesus would say to us this morning is this, don't you know that I've come? Don't you know that I've provided a way? And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came and lived the life that you and I couldn't live. Jesus died the death on a cross that our sins deserved. And here's what he says you have to do to, to, to seek him and to find him. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Listen, some of y'all need to quit searching for the things of this world to satisfy you and you need to confess that Jesus is Lord. And some of us in here long ago confessed that Jesus was Lord. But we've since picked up the mantle of our, our life and done it the way we want to do it. Jesus isn't Lord of your life. You're Lord of your life. You're living how you want to live. And I will tell you this morning that if that's how you're living, you need to seek Him. And you need to find what He has for you. Because seeking the Lord is all that matters. I'll give you a verse and we'll close. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13. Jeremiah said this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What God said through the prophet in Jeremiah's day is true in our day. If you truly seek God, you'll find him. The question for us this morning is simply this, what is it that you are seeking? And if it's not the Lord, why is it not him? If you were encouraged by today's sermon, leave us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church Martin, visit fbcmartin.org.